Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, America's Greatest Need. All right, well, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 33, verse 12, I'll just quote it to you, you don't have to turn there. In Psalm 33, 12, it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Stacey and I recently vacationed in Virginia, and while we were there, we visited what's known as the historical triangle. The historical triangle made up of three different cities, Williamsburg, which was the capital of the Virginia colony from 1699 until 1779. Then we went over to Jamestown, which is the first English settlement in the New World. And then we went to Yorktown, which of course is the site of the last major battle of the American Revolution. And so in Williamsburg, we got to see very cool places like the governor's mansion uh, there behind uh, my wife and I. And then we also got to see the Capitol uh, building there in Williamsburg as well. When we went over to Jamestown, we got to see the replicas of the three ships that you learned about in elementary school, the three ships that came from England to um, our shores way back in 1607. And then we got to see a replica or a model of the fort that they lived in there in Jamestown. In Yorktown, we got to go over and see the Victory Monument, the monument that commemorated Cornwall's surrender to General Washington. And then later, I got to snap this really cool picture of a charming sailboat on the York River. Just a a beautiful, beautiful area of our nation. We also got to drive over a couple hours to Charlottesville. Charlottesville, where of course, Uh, We got to tour Thomas Jefferson's famous mansion, Monticello, there in the beautiful hills of Charlottesville. We got to see the leaves changing. And so for me, the two main highlights of the week were, number one, I got to spend a whole week uninterrupted with my beautiful wife. And those of you who know Stacy, you know that I married way, way up. We've been married now for 31 and a half years and we're more in love than ever before. And I just thank God publicly uh, for my wife and for the grace of giving me such a beautiful woman on the inside and the out. Uh, But secondly, uh, I got to learn, my wife and I got to learn more about one of our favorite, or at least one of my favorite subjects and that is the American Revolution. And so in Yorktown, I had a chance to talk to a few of the revolutionaries. Admiral DeGrasse, and so I stood there in Yorktown and I got to speak to these revolutionaries, Admiral DeGrasse and George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette. And for some reason, uh, I did most of the talking, I don't know why, uh, but it was a very, very inspiring conversation that we had. And I was actually, later on, even able to talk George Washington into becoming a Tampa Bay Rays fan. He was a Yankees fan, but then he became a Rays fan after he talked to me, I gave him my hat. And by the way, being from Tampa, I just gotta say, I'm so, so disappointed that we lost the World Series, but here's my claim to fame, at least we beat, finally, the New York Yankees in the playoffs. I just wanna say that for the record. Amen, Amen. yes, somebody's from Tampa, finally. Man, I just like feel alone up here or something. On a more serious note, uh, during our trip, 
I got to uh, read a lot about our founding fathers. And ladies and gentlemen, I was reminded and I was inspired by their faith. Uh, There's a really good website called wallbuilders.com, wallbuilders.com. It's David Barton's uh, website. And he tells us that there were at least 250 founding fathers. So usually we hear about, you know, one or two or three, maybe seven or eight, and our secular society likes to bring up the ones who were, you know, irreligious or deists. But I'm quoting from wallbuilders.com, over 250 individuals are historically considered founding fathers. Example is the signers of the Declaration, the signers of the Constitution, the framers of the Bill of Rights, and leading state governors and generals in the Revolution. And so our founders believed, they had faith in a creator, and that that creator had given us certain unalienable rights that cannot ever be taken away. They wrote it down. As you know, on July 4, 1776, the Second Continental Congress adopted a declaration that would become one of the most famous declarations in all of human history. They declared that the 13 colonies are now independent of the British Empire. And in their declaration of independence, they boldly stated this. This is our founding. This is our rich heritage as America. And so just know as people in our society are burning and looting and they're tearing down what they hate, that what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of the rich history that we have in this country. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are, what's the next two words? Created equal. And that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ladies and gentlemen, our founders believed that the worth of a, of a human being was not dependent on their social or economic standing. It was not dependent on how close they were to the king of England or whether they were of noble birth or whether or not they uh, owned property. They believed that all men are created equal and that their creator gave us certain unalienable rights. That word unalienable, of course, means they cannot be taken away. And so despite what some historians, and I use that term very lightly, some historians have written in their revisionist views of our past, the truth is this. If you're with me this this morning, say amen. Amen. Here's the truth. Most, and yes, I said the word most, most of our founding fathers were Christians. Not deists. Some were deists. But most were Christians. Concerning the Christian faith, our first president, George Washington, said, and I quote, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. After Thomas Paine criticized and denounced the Christian faith, our second president, John Adams, said, and I quote, the Christian religion, above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in in ancient or modern times is the religion of wisdom and virtue, equity and humanity. Then he goes, (laughs) let the blackguard pain, blackguard, that's an 18th century word for let the rogue, let the dishonorable man, Thomas P. 
Paine, who by the way became a deist, say what he will. Concerning his desire for Christianity to flourish throughout our United States, our sixth president, John Quincy Adams said, and I quote, the hope of a Christian is inseparable from his faith. Whoever believes in the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures must hope that the religion of who? Jesus. See, they weren't ashamed to say that name. The religion of Jesus shall prevail throughout the earth. In case you have any doubts that many of our founding fathers were in fact Christians, I want you to check out this very short excerpt. It's much longer, by the way. And I also heard that after they prayed this prayer, they studied the Bible, uh, four chapters from the Bible. And so check out this excerpt from the very first prayer of the Continental Congress in 1774. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, look down in mercy on these, our American states. How many of you guys believe we need to pray that this week? Who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior, amen. Very first prayer of our Continental Congress, 1774. And apparently, God answered their prayer because what everybody thought was impossible actually happened. A bunch of ragtag patriots who didn't even have a navy, maybe a couple of rowboats, who were very... Um, underfunded and completely outnumbered. At one point, it was 32,000 British troops against 2,500 of the Continental Army. So underfunded and so outnumbered, and yet they actually defeated the mighty British Empire and they threw off their oppressive rule. And by the way, it wasn't all about taxation without representation, that's just one of the reasons out of many. In 1787, our Constitution was signed and the world just waited to see if this new nation, this new experiment that was built on freedom and democracy would actually last in the world because you know the world was filled with tyrants and um, dictators at that time. And so this is something that was new to me in the last two years and I, I really enjoy learning things like this. But in 1831, a French historian named Alexis de Tocqueville, he visited America on a fact-finding mission. During his visit from France to America, he was amazed that American democracy was still flourishing even after almost 50 years after the American Revolution. And if you guys remember, the French also had their own revolution and it was a complete disaster. And so the Americans were flourishing, and this intrigued Tocqueville, and he later wrote this. He said, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. You see this? And by the way, this is not in the notes, I'll just throw this in for free. This whole thing about separation of church and state, it's not so that Christians can't get involved and speak our voice in our American government. The separation of church and state is about the government and how they are to have nothing to do with the local church. That's the truth. 
but I defer. He said, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. Do you guys see what he's saying? Tocqueville, the French historian who visited the United States of America in 1831, he linked the religious aspect that he saw everywhere in our nation with the the reason that we were flourishing politically. Things were very different in France, which he noted in these words. He said, and I quote, in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions, but in America, I found they were intimately united and that they, re, they reigned in common over the same country. And so a French historian, 1831, comes over to America, intrigued, why is American democracy still flourishing? Why are the Americans you know, doing so well? And he says it's the religious aspect And somebody says, well, Pastor Mike, how do you know he wasn't talking about deism? How do you know he wasn't talking about some other religion? How do you know that he's talking about Christianity? Because the guy also said this. He said, there is no country in the world where, what religion? The Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. You wanna know why America prospered 50 years after the signing of the Constitution? Here's why, because the people in America loved Jesus Christ. Many of them did. They didn't go hide in a corner somewhere. They didn't go hide their religion somewhere, scared to death to speak out. No, they believed in Jesus and they lived out the principles of the Christian faith. And so I'll say it again, despite what some modern day historians say in their revisionist views, Christianity absolutely had a major influence on many of our founders and many of our citizens for many years. That's the good news. But in a fallen world, there's always bad news, right? And so, there was a huge problem See, even though our Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal, there was one sin that just refused to go away. And I think you know what sin I'm talking about, the sin of slavery. And so this is something else I learned in the last two years which really blessed my soul, and that is that Christian abolitionists were so active and worked so hard from the time of the American Revolution until the time of the Civil War trying to abolish slavery. Christian, that's what Christians do. Not all the abolitionists were Christians, but many of them were born again Christians and they hated slavery. But despite their work, slavery remained entrenched in the South. On the last day of our vacation, Stacy and I stopped in um, the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. And as a Christian myself, you know, you can't tour a museum like that without coming to this conclusion. This is the conclusion I came to as I walked out those doors uh, last week sometime. And that is, when truth is being compromised, you can bet your bottom dollar that God's gonna raise up a leader to do something about that. Abraham Lincoln was such a leader. 
Before he was elected as president, he said, and I quote, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. So he's elected as president. Within three months after the election, he watched seven states succeed from the union in protest that Abraham Lincoln is now our president. Later on, four more states joined them, 11 states birthing the Confederate States of America. And in those southern states, they were made up of, listen to this, 5.5 million free whites and 3.5 million enslaved blacks. And ladies and gentlemen, as a nation, there's some things worth fighting for, and freeing people who are in bondage is absolutely worth fighting for. There's something called a just war, and sometimes you gotta take up arms. And slavery wasn't the only reason for the Civil War, we all know that. There was this thing called preserving the Union, but you need to know that slavery was one of the great moral reasons why the North went to war with the South and brother fought against brother from 1861 to 1865. In the middle of the Civil War on January 1st, 1863, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which legally, legally freed the slaves. It didn't actually free them yet. In November of the same year, Lincoln goes to Gettysburg. He stands on that field where the battle had taken place. He's there to dedicate a cemetery where 23,000 Union soldiers died in the struggle. One battle, 23,000 Union soldiers, 28,000 Confederate soldiers, but 23,000 guys from the North gave their lives in a struggle for freedom. And while dedicating that cemetery, Lincoln said, it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God, do you see that? Under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Why is it a new birth? Because you got 3.5 to 4 million people in chains, in slavery. There needs to be a new birth of freedom and that government of the people and by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. I remember the first time I went to Lincoln Memorial and I read the speech and I remember tearing up. You see, Lincoln knew it was the height of hypocrisy for us in our nation to claim that we're free in America while enslaving millions of people because of the color of their skin. And so Lee finally surrendered to Grant in, eight, in April of 1865, and the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, was ratified in December of 1865. December 1865, 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. That's a momentous day in the history of our nation. But how many of you guys know that laws cannot change the human heart? Policies cannot change the human heart. And so though slavery ended, racial discrimination did not end. And so what did God do? He raised up another leader. 
Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so a century later, he raised up Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And King and the civil rights leaders, listen to this, if you're with me, say amen here. Through nonviolence. There was no, as far as King's camp, there was no rioting or burning or looting. That was another camp. But as far as Martin Luther King was concerned, it was nonviolence. And through nonviolence, they stood against the prejudice and the hatred that was still prevalent in our nation even after 100 years. How many of you were here alive in the 1960s? Let me see your hands. I was a little kid and I don't remember this. I had to watch it on TV later. But those of you who are older than me, you remember that in the 1960s, racial discrimination was alive and well in our nation, especially in the South. It was alive and well in the workplace, it was alive and well in schools, it was alive and well in restaurants, in the voting booth, and in public transportation. And in 1963, when blacks and whites were segregated in the South, in that same year, Martin Luther King Jr. appropriately stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he gave his great I Have a Dream speech. And in that speech, before 250,000 people, he said, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Why did it take until 1963 in the South for that to happen? Why? Because laws don't change our hearts. And I'll address that issue in a little while. But through the efforts of our civil rights leaders, important legislation was passed, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act in 1968. Do you see the progression? Everything rises and falls on leadership. In 63, he gave the speech. He worked so hard, him and his followers, and now the result is this righteous legislation. And ladies and gentlemen, there's still work that has to be done today in our nation concerning racial reconciliation. And I believe that Christians need to be leading that work and Christians need to be speaking out and saying something today. Christians. Jesus said to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. Come on, church family, allow yourself to be moved today. Allow the wall in your heart to go down. Allow yourself to be inspired by something that is greater than you are. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What does salt do? Salt preserves what is good in our nation. We don't you know, back up, we don't hide, we don't go in our basement, we don't stack up on canned goods and buy a bunch of guns and just wait the thing out. No, we are called, the spirit of Jesus tells us to get involved in our nation, get involved in people's lives. What does salt do? Salt preserves what is good in a nation. There's nothing good about racism. He says, you're the light of the world. What does light do? It exposes the sin of prejudice and hatred and it illuminates, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to be talking about. If we don't talk about it, who's gonna talk about it? And so even though progress was made in the 1960s, 
you need to know that for 30 years, from 1960 to 1990 or thereabouts, even though some progress was made, we took a lot of steps backwards as a nation. Let me give you some dates. In 1962, prayer was banned in our public schools. In 1963, devotional Bible reading was banned in our public schools. In 1973, abortion was legalized. Do you guys know that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, about 61 million babies have been killed in their mother's wombs? 60, because see, we're numb. We're numb to the number. 61 human lives lost. And by the way, it's not that they're part of a woman's body. They have their own body with their own set of chromosomes. They're a separate person. They have rights. Christians need to be the ones who speak out about this and lead the charge against abortion. We gotta stop being afraid. We gotta start speaking the truth in love. People get mad at us, who cares? We only have one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I guarantee you that Christ is all about life, not death. We're the salt of the earth. We preserve what is good. What is, there's nothing good about abortion. We're the light of the world. That means we expose something when it's wrong and we illuminate love for all, including the unborn. It's what we do. So in 1962, prayer banned in public schools. 1963, devotional Bible reading banned in public schools. 1973, abortion is legalized. 1980, 10 commandments taken down from the bulletin boards of our public schools. In 1987, the Supreme Court ruled that we could no longer teach creation alongside with evolution. No longer, no more creation, just evolution. And some people wonder why we spent millions of dollars to build a Christian school across our street. It's because we love our kids. It's because we want our kids to be raised up in truth, to be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Is it a sacrifice? Yeah. There are so many people that are giving their heart and their soul and their blood and sweat and tears to make that thing run. But guess what? God's in it, God's providing, and it's flourishing right now across the street. Thank God for that. And so, speaking, by the way, about creation, before he died in 2010, the famous scientist, Antony Flew, he converted from being a atheist to being a theist, a theist. And so then he wrote a book, he called it, There Is a God. It was subtitled, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now look at this, concerning the origin of life, this is what Antony Flew, the former atheist said. He said, it is simply inconceivable that any material matrix or field can generate agents who think and act. Do you guys understand what that means right there? Do you see that? Can we be thinking Christians? A force field does not plan or think. So the world of living, conscious, thinking beings has to originate 
and a living source, a mind. You see, what reasonable, you don't have to be religious. What reasonable people understand is this fact. If you're with me, say amen here. Something can't come from nothing. How can somebody be an atheist? There's no God. Something cannot come from nothing. The world of living, conscious, thinking beings could not have come from an impersonal force field. There must have been a personal source, a living source, a mind. And those of us who are born again Christians who believe the word of God, we understand that that's the Lord. He's the first cause. He's the uncaused cause. He's the eternal almighty God. And he set it all into motion. But we don't wanna bow our knee to the Lord. We don't wanna have any authority over our lives. And so we'd rather say there is no God. Well, Psalm 14, one says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Let's not be foolish. When you look around and you see design in the universe, guess what? Eureka, there's a designer. When you look at your human body and you see design, guess what? Eureka, there's a designer. And so I personally feel like April 1st, we all know what April 1st is, right? April 1st should be a national holiday for all the atheists in America. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Give me a break. From about 1960 to 1990, as I said, there's so many setbacks in our nation. So many steps backwards. I already listed all the things that happened, though so many more. But in that same time frame, from 1960 to 1990, guess what happened? Violent crime rose 500%. The divorce rate rose 200%. Teenage pregnancy rose 200%. Teenage suicide rose 300%. I wonder why. So as we look at our nation in the last 30 years, from 1990 now to 2020, who can deny that things are worse than ever? I'm not talking about in world history. There's been times in world history where things were worse than they are. I'm talking about in our nation, 244 years. Right now, we've seen the progression. We've gone from a, a nation that was built on Christian principles. Now we are thoroughly secular, humanistic, godless, and our nation, have you watched TV, is growing more violent every single year. My question is, how long until judgment comes? I was in a Baptist church for 10 years. and Sometimes those Baptist preachers just kinda tell it like it is. And I heard a Baptist preacher one day say, and I quote, if God does not judge America, he's gonna have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's some truth in that. And so he may judge us by just stepping back and letting us self-destruct. If you want more information about that, read Romans 1. Greg Laurie, one of my favorite evangelists said, and I quote, America, like every other nation, has its days numbered. Rome was once the reigning superpower on the face of the earth with the most powerful military, sound familiar, the world had ever seen. Rome was eventually conquered. 
but before she collapsed externally, she collapsed what? Internally. Oh, pastor, come on. America is a superpower, politically, economically, militarily, we'll never fall, we'll never collapse. I wonder if the Roman Empire said the same thing in their day. And where are they now? What happened to Rome? They became so immoral, they collapsed internally, they self-destructed. Scripture says this, righteousness exalts a nation. Does that first half of that verse do anything inside of you? Have we grown so numb? See, this should be our hope and our prayer for America, that we would return to what Tocqueville saw in 1831, the religious aspect, the Christianity influence all over our nation, which caused flourishing in other areas of our government. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so contrary to popular opinion, the primary problem in our nation is not political or economic or, or, or social. It's spiritual. We've abandoned righteousness. We wanna do whatever we wanna do. We've embraced sin. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a spiritual problem. And so how do you address a spiritual problem? You do not address a spiritual problem with better political, social, or economic policies. That can help, but it's kinda like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. You can stop the bleeding for a little while, but you haven't really addressed the real problem. What's the real problem in America? What's the real problem in a fallen world? It's sin. We're all descendants of Adam. And by one man, sin entered into the world. It was perfect. God created everything beautiful and perfect. We're the ones who messed it up. And by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, Romans 5, 12. And so we're born in sin, and we choose to sin. And the result of that is the wages, I say this every week, don't I? The wages of sin is death. We are under a sentence of death. Physical death, spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. And so that's the problem, it is a spiritual problem. All right, so what's the answer? It's not what, it's who. His name is Jesus. He's the answer. Why don't we all shout his name on the count of three? You ready for this? One, two, three. Jesus. He's the only one who has the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life to pay for our sins, did we forget about it? The one who rose from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, victorious over death. What did Jesus do through his, the cross and resurrection? He crushed the head of the serpent and now when we come to him and we're cleansed by his blood, guess what? That serpent no longer has power and authority over our lives. We have a new dynamic, we have a new power, we have resurrection power to live in a way that's righteous in our land. And so if you're a backslidden Christian, here's the message today. Return to Jesus Christ. If you are a person and you don't know where you stand with God, here's the message. Go to Jesus Christ. Here's what I guarantee you. He will not be doing this. He certainly won't do this. He always does this. That's our God. He's loving. He's merciful. 
And so what is America's greatest need? It's a revival in the church and it's a spiritual awakening in our nation. That's the remedy. Do we believe that? You see, notice it starts with a revival in the church and then it expands to a spiritual awakening in the nation. It's so easy for us to, as Christians, right, to look down our self-righteous noses and point our fingers at a godless, humanistic, secular culture, right? Bad on you, bad on you. But I want you to see who God points his finger at when he wants to heal a nation. Look at 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. He says, if the world, is that what he says? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the remedy. And by the way, you say, well, pastor, um, that was written to Israel. Listen, I just finished hermeneutics, <laughs> proper Bible interpretation in my seminary master's degree. I'm very well aware who that is written to, but not only do you have interpretation, you have application, and that, that has application for every generation. He didn't say if the world would get their act together. He said if my people would do the following, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will show up. If enough American Christians did what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, there would be revival in the church and that would spark a spiritual awakening in our land, in our nation. It would change so many things. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Better political, social, or economic policies are important, but they don't change the human heart. Only Christ can change the human heart. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's Jesus. So in conclusion, at the end of the 19th century, there was a Baptist evangelist named Gypsy Smith. He traveled all around America preaching the gospel. Whenever he approached a town, this is what he did, this was his custom, he would draw a circle in the dirt. And then he would enter that circle. So before he preaches in the town, he draws the circle, he enters the circle. And then he prays. He says, Lord, please send a revival to this town and let it begin in this circle. His ministry, if you Google, Google his name, is, was immensely blessed. Many people came to Christ. How many of you guys believe the same thing can happen today? See, it starts not doing this to the world. It starts with personal revival, looking at our own lives, our own need for repentance. And so what's the most important thing we can do this week? Good job. I said that last night, and everybody in the church almost said, vote! <laughs> That's the second most important thing. Vote, 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 vote your biblical values. We live in a free nation. People would die to have the right to vote in so many parts of the world. We have that right and we don't even go. Vote with a Bible in one hand, a ballot in the other hand, understanding what this book teaches, but you gotta vote. But the most important thing that you and I can do this week is draw a circle in the sand, enter that circle, and say, Lord God, 
I'm gonna seek you, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna humble myself, and I'm gonna turn from my sin, revive everything in this circle. And my prayer is that the God of heaven will hear, forgive our sins, and heal the United States of America, amen? We have the truth, we have the answer. Sometimes it seems like, oh, we're just such a minority. With God, we're a majority. Don't ever forget that, don't ever forget that. <laughs>